Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. One of the most consistent issues with organizations looking to innovate is the idea of change management. How do I get an organization that's used to doing things a certain way to embrace change and to bake innovation into its DNA? My guest today is Jillian Chown. Jillian teaches at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management in the Management and Organizations Department. And her research focuses on change management, most recently focusing on healthcare organizations and the use of incentives to drive change. And in this discussion, we dig deep into the various challenges preventing companies from change, uh, the role that leadership at different levels of the organization can play in driving that change, how incentives might play a role, and different strategies and techniques necessary to drive incremental versus disruptive change. Um, I learned a lot from this conversation. I hope you will too. And with that, let's go to Jillian. All right, Jillian, thanks so much for uh, being here. Why don't we, uh, I guess, start with you're at a dinner party and, and someone comes up to you and asks you what you do. How do you, how do you sort of describe uh, your, your role at Kellogg? Well, so my role here is I'm a professor of management and organizations, uh, obviously at the, the business school here. And that is a job that comprises two main things. The first is I teach. And in that course, I take the students through um, lots of different content around thinking about the processes of leading change in organizations, how do you design change, the different types of change they may be involved with or lead during the course of their careers. And then the other side of my job, which actually takes up most of my time, is doing research. And so I research issues around change and adaptation inside organizations, predominantly organizations that are dominated by professionals like healthcare organizations. And I find those organizations particularly interesting in the context of change because there are, you know, both it's it's incredibly important that we figure out how to innovate the way we deliver healthcare and also they tend to be really complex organizations to change with different forces coming from different professions that have different ways of doing things, interacting with management systems to try and deliver best care. So I study things like implementation of new practices, uh, how incentives influence physician behavior, how... Um, basically all just sort of different dimensions of organizational change. Got it. So my research and teaching aspects kind of fit together around this idea of implementing change. Yeah. So I guess along those lines, you know, when most people talk about change management, it's usually in the context of why is this so hard and why can't we, yes. why aren't we better at this? What are, what are some of the biggest barriers that from, you know, from your perspective and from what you've seen that you, uh, that you think these organizations kind of run into over and over again? Well, I think there's 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 a lot of them, right? And I think different organizations face different types of challenges. I think one of the things that I see most often is there people get really excited about change at the beginning and then fail to realize that in most instances, implementing change effectively is something that will take years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And so there tends to be this focus on short-termism in business and in organizations, and so they throw a lot of energy and resources at the beginning, but then as they, they maybe start to see improvements in one area and sort of maybe they're piloting it in one area of the organization and they start to drive it into other areas, 
But after about a year, they think, okay, that's great, and they move on, or there's some other disaster that takes their attention away or takes their resources away, mm -hmm. and they, they sort of take their foot off the gas before they actually get to the point where those changes are embedded in the fabric of the organization. Mm -hmm. And so I think that diminished focus over time is one of the big pitfalls that I see. I think another issue that I've seen um, both in theory and in practice in my research is that organizations often lack appropriate metrics or measures of the effectiveness of the change. So they think we're going to change this practice in order to you know, make things better, but they don't have really good ways of measuring the impact of that intervention. Hmm. And so without those metrics, then you know you sit back six months into it or a year into it and you say is this working and people might say yes or no but it ends up being more like people's interpretations rather than something quantifiable and it's not that they don't think about measuring it's that sometimes things like oh we're going to change the culture yeah it's just really hard to measure like yeah. how do you come up with a measurement maybe right. you do employee surveys but you know really what's you know on a scale of one to ten what is one unit of one unit increase in employee engagement actually worth? And, and I think that is a difficult question for organizations to answer. And I think the final thing I was going to say is when it, often there is a huge pressure inside organizations to make change happen quickly. And I think this is partly because organize, often organizations are changing because something is going wrong or they see some big threat looming and they want to try and change. Yeah. And so they speed through these like early stages of the change process where you're actually trying to gain an understanding about the situation you're facing, establish a sense of urgency within the senior team, but also throughout the organization, create that coalition that's going to be driving the change and start to really communicate it and push it out. And I think if you don't spend the time at the beginning to really understand the problem and create that sense of urgency and get people you know, understanding in a very visceral way that they need to change, you know, no matter you know, how great your approach is later on with implementing those changes, you just, you, you don't have the foundation to actually make it happen. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the, that kind of, uh... One of the related to the communication thing, one of the tropes that you often hear about is just sort of how how it needs to kind of come from the from the top. And a yes. lot of people think that 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 sort of leadership is the most important element of it. And in a lot of cases, you know what they mean by that or what they think they mean by that is like you need a strong kind of charismatic leader who can cast a vision and get everybody kind of riled up or whatever. Um, do, do you feel like I guess, first of all, do you feel like leadership is kind of the sort of first kind of critical component and then. Uh, how do you think about kind of the role of leadership and maybe the type of leadership that's necessary to make something like that happen? So, yes, I agree. I think leadership is incredibly important for any change effort. I don't, I don't think that only means leadership at the top of the organization. I think it means, you know, you definitely, you know, it certainly helps a lot if you have the CEO and the C-suite uh, on board with whatever change it is that you are, you know, driving yeah. or that you're needing. But that also means leadership at the level of the project or the unit or the division or whatever it is that's changing. So the the need for leadership cascades throughout the organization, all in in pursuit of of whatever that change is. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's important to remember that just because you are a middle manager in an organization or you're you know you're in a unit managing a team and that unit is changing, 
you know, you as a middle manager there, you have a big role to play in leading that change, right? In, in sort of shaping the understanding of your team members about what that change means for them and what it means for your department. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of time, I think people do confuse leadership with charisma or they conflate yeah. the ideas. I think there is definitely a role for charismatic leadership, right? And you mentioned this in your question. It's this idea that charismatic leaders can really engage people in a very you know deep way where they're excited about things they become you know passionate about doing the thing that that charismatic leader is talking about because charisma can go so far in you know in in really making people excited about what they're doing mm-hmm. and i think that that's that's incredibly important but it's not the only thing Right. So you definitely like charisma is great for the energizing and the, you know, creating that vision and getting people on board. But you also need leadership in managing the kind of day to day of the change effort. Right. So you need leadership in figuring out how you're going to, you know, structure the change program, what how you're going to design the changes that you're making, how that change will impact the existing organization as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you need people who can think about the measurement that I that I talked about earlier and that sustained focus on actually implementing the change. And so I think, you know, it doesn't if you're not, you know, for people who are listening, if you're not a super charismatic person, that doesn't mean that you're going to forever be doomed and never be able to actually make change. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. It, but it might mean that if you're sitting there and you're leading a change and you realize, you know what, I'm not the most charismatic person. Well, maybe when I'm actually creating my change team, thinking about who is going to lead the change, who's going to be the face of the change in the organization, you look to develop or bring in that skill set onto that team, right? So that you can have, um, you know, someone who is going to play that more charismatic role. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, that makes um, sense. You and so that's what I think about. It's like, a, you know, a useful component, but not everybody needs to have it. Got it. You mentioned uh, kind of the design of the change process. I mean, I, uh, I would imagine there's a couple of kind of components to that. Does, as it relates to kind of the design of sort of the organization itself, like are there, are there um, uh, either, at a, either at a kind of a macro sort of organizational level or within the confines of a, um, a team who is tasked with it, are there, are there any sort of structures that kind of uh, or constellations of teams or, um, or, or, or organizational structures just sort of generally that lend themselves uh, to, to more successful initiatives? Or can you execute on this stuff kind of regardless of the way the organization is sort of structured and set up? So I think, you know, it's a really interesting question. I think the, when you're thinking about change processes and the likelihood of success of any particular change, I think it matters a lot the way the organization is structured and designed. Mm -hmm. But it's more a question of fit in my mind than it is of one structure being more or less likely to facilitate change. So when I think about organizational design and organizational sort of structures, I like to think of it as an alignment model where you've got multiple dimensions of the organization that really need to be in alignment with each other in order to actually um, you know, execute well on whatever the organization is trying to do. Yeah. So the different dimensions that I think about are strategy, right, which is you know, where are you going to compete and what's your, your competitive advantage, how are you going to win. 
Then you've got organizational structure, which is really how are the different tasks in the organization bucketed together? So you can think of this as, you know, common organizational structures would be, you know, functional, where you have all the salespeople sit together and all the marketing people sit together and all the finance people sit together, that type yeah. of thing. Um, or divisional, where you have geographies or products or something like that. So that's really the structure. So you've got strategy, structure, then you've got processes, which is really how all of the information and decisions flow throughout the organization. Mm -hmm. And then you've got people systems and reward systems. Hmm. And, uh, and then behind all of that and kind of tying it together in this murky way is the organization's culture. And so I think when I think about organization design, I think about these different components, strategy, yeah. structure, process, people, rewards, and culture, and the, the idea that they all need to be working towards, really working towards supporting that strategy. So then when we think about change, often I think one of the challenges is that people only think about changing maybe one aspect of that, right? So you've got an organization that exists in, in, you know, in time zero, and you say, okay, we need to actually change, we're gonna change the structure. And so you come up with a whole new design of a structure that you think is going to solve some problem, and so you implement that structure. Hmm. But maybe haven't actually thought about all these other elements of the organization and how they you know, we're working really well with the given structure, but if you change that structure, then suddenly you're gonna put all this pressure in these other elements of the organization, and you may actually end up either not being able to successfully restructure, or that new structure creates so many problems because you haven't figured out what other elements of the organization have to change. So does that mean that those things all have to change at the same time, or are you able to, I mean, is there, is there a, if you were to try to, um, if you were to try to kind of, if those are all my, if those are the five or whatever it is levers that I'm dealing with, do you, yeah. do you pull, is there a, is there an order of operations that is more effective than others or do you yeah. try to do it all so, at once or how do you do that? I mean, it's an interesting, that's also a very interesting question. So I think, you know, the first thing is to recognize and to sort of identify you know, what are the changes that are going to need to be made, right? So where are those tensions that are going to exist if you actually try and, for example, change the structure? Yeah. So it might be like, oh, geez, when we change the structure, that's going to make our incentive system really weird because we're currently, you know, people are in, you know, incented based on the geography that they're in, but now that's not going to make any sense with the way that we're restructuring, yeah. right? And you may see these tensions across all these different levers. Yeah. Um, and so just mapping out where you actually think those tensions lie is critical. But then I think you raise a great question, which is what about sequence? Mm -hmm. Do you do everything at once You like, or do you, you know, sequence it in some other way? If you do everything at once, you know, it's a huge shock to the company yeah. and that can be really destabilizing, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but if you draw it out, that can also be agony. Mm. And so it is this balancing act of figuring out, you know, and, and it depends again on the size of the organization, the size of the change, and also the, the size of the threat that the organization is facing. So if you're in a situation, if your organization is in a situation where, you know, if we don't do something, we are gonna go under in, you know, six months. Well, maybe you have, you know, if people can see that, people understand the urgency, you can probably get buy-in to make these drastic changes. Yeah. If, on the other hand, everything is going really well, but you see this big opportunity in the future, and so if you implement a change, if you restructure, if you move, if you expand into a new geography, 
for example, you know, you think you can capitalize on that, you may have a harder time selling this idea that you need some radical transformation versus some like a slower burn on, on what that change would be. Yeah. I've seen organizations, you know, again, I don't think there's one right answer, but I have seen organizations do the sort of the the hardware first where they they do and sort of GE is famous for this back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, something like that, mm-hmm. where they, you know, made a lot of big structural changes with the with the workforce and with sort of how the organization was structured and they focused on that first and it was really really difficult and then in the next era they went towards more, uh, initiatives more around you know building up these people systems figuring out what the right reward systems are and working on building a really like innovative hard driving culture right and so that was an example where they were massive changes but they did do sort of some sense of sequence there yeah. uh, which worked, I mean, it worked for them at that point. Um, But I think with change management, one of the challenges in general is there's no right answer that's going to work for everyone all the time, right? It's so it ends up being so context specific. You mentioned incentives, and it seems like that's something that I would imagine would come up a lot. I mean, we run, we, in in our world, we run into that a lot in the context of, um, you know, we're, 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 we're often tasked with trying to help them with, you know, more disruptive types of non-core things that look a lot mm-hmm. like a startup and, and they run into a lot of incentive issues around, you know, people who have, people who have gravitated toward a larger organization because of stability and some of those kinds of things and lack of risk. And, and, uh, in their case, you know, if I want to take on this big risky thing that's where I'm going to put political capital at risk. I want to be able to share in the upside, kind of similar to how a startup would. And and so in our world, those are some of the kinds of things that we run into. But you, you mentioned some others around geography and things like that. It just seems like incentives would drive um, a tremendous amount of behavior <laughs> around yes. all of this. So how how are, are there any sort of strategies that organizations can use to? Uh, and and obviously, I you know, it, this is a, a Pandora's box, I'm sure, um, but any high level kind of strategies that people can use to sort of align incentives in a, or a framework in which they can think about it? Or how, how do you think about incentives? So I think about incentives as um, a bunch of trade-offs. And I also, you know, generally believe that any incentive system is going to, can be and will be gamed. Okay. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just the truth, right? Yeah, like anyone yeah. who has a kid has realized how quickly kids learn whatever incentive system your family has in place, yeah. right? Whether yeah. it's, you know, what happens if you don't make your bed? What happens if you forget to pick up your dishes? Or, you know, how do you get your sibling in trouble? Like, all the, like, people learn the system they're in and they learn to get what they want out of that system, mm. right? And I think incentive systems are no different. Um, I think it, you know, it's maybe a cynical view. I think it is my caveat before I get into my incentive, uh, my thoughts on incentive will be that incentives, you know, and, and in general, when we think about incentives, we think about motivation and, you know, money is not the only way to motivate people, right? So I want to say that up front, you know, there's extrinsic motivation, which is all around getting rewards, both monetary and non-monetary. But also there's intrinsic motivation, and that is the motivation that people have, you know, can vary, you know, person to person about what it is that motivates them. But for example, you know, lots of people are motivated by 
the desire to succeed on really tough projects. They're yeah. motivated by trying to build their skills and test what they can do. And they're, motiv they're intrinsically motivated by the idea of you know working with great teams and having wonderful relationships at work. So it's not all about money. Yeah. But often when people think about incentives, they think about extrinsic motivation, which is rewards, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's not the only way, particularly in change, right? But we can come back to that at the end. With respect to rewards, so once you know that every that there's trade-offs in the decisions you make, right? Decisions between, you know, are you going to pay a salary that is just, you know, a given, or is there going to be some sort of performance compensation? You know, that's a clear trade-off, right? The trade-off being that, you know, if you just pay a salary, well, then people might just like sit there and do their job, you know, reasonably well, and you know, be okay with that because. Yeah. Whether they give that, you know, go that extra mile, you know, it's not going to have any effect on their on their pay, right? Versus if you have performance comp, well, then yeah, like you might actually get them to try harder because they know that they they their paycheck will look better in the end because they've given that extra effort, right? Yeah. So that's the the type of trade off that that you may have, right? Or trade offs between, you know, short term rewards yeah. like an annual bonus versus long-term rewards like yeah. stock compensation yeah. that pays out over you know multiple years and stuff like that. So then when you're thinking about the design of your incentive system, I think it makes sense to sit back and try and think about, you know, what types of behaviors is your incentive system motivating, mm -hmm. right? As it is right now. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the characteristics that are there and think about, you know, maybe put your cynical hat on and say, okay, what would I do if I was, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Smith and I was sitting here doing my job? What would this incentive system motivate me to do? Yeah. And then think about where's the gap between that and what I actually want to see in my organization. Mm -hmm. So it might be that, you know, you most people are just on salary and that's just the way it's been. And that's, you know, it's worked reasonably well. But now as an organization, you're feeling like you really need, you want more innovation and more innovation from more departments. You, you don't just want your salespeople to be innovate or your product design people to be innovating, but you want your, you know, operations people to be innovating and your engineers to be innovating or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so you're basically, you can say, this is my current state and where I see um, you know, what my current incentive system is motivating and here are the types of behaviors that I want to see. Yeah. And from there you can really see where that gap is and then try and put in place incentives that are actually going to get you closer to what that, um, future state will look like, right? So is it yeah. that you want more innovative behaviors or do you want more collaboration? Right. Like maybe you don't have any collaboration or cross-selling and that's something where, you know, you want to put that in place. And so you have to think about how in your context can you actually make that happen, mm -hmm. Both, you know, with monetary stuff. But then again, also maybe there are other ways to motivate uh, people beyond beyond money. Yeah, it's an interesting point when you're, you know, when you're talking about how anybody, you know, from like how anybody can enact change and you talk about like middle management, some of that kind of things. Um, I would imagine that they think that uh, they, one of the reasons that they can't is because they can't, um, they can't marshal the resources or make decisions around changing incentives, but they're probably thinking about the external, like you were saying. Yes. And so like yeah. maybe a real area for low hanging fruit is to think about, well, what are the, what are those intrinsic incentives that I can try to align 
towards and, and really try to leverage those first and see what how far I can get with that. Does that? Yeah, definitely. And actually, so this is one of the like common questions that I get from my MBA students who say, yeah, you know, this is this is great, but I'm not going to be a CEO when I graduate. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I can't sit there and be like, I'm just going to redesign the incentive system or right. I'm going to pay everybody differently. Like that's not right. just, it's just not within their scope of control. And so a lot of time, we spent a lot of time in my class thinking about what does this mean for middle managers? And I think you hit on a great point, which is, you know, you may not be able to change the compensation structure, but you can either, you know, you may be responsible for who you hire in your department. Yeah. And so when you're thinking about who you hire, maybe there's ways during the interviews that you can, you know, suss out people who you think will have have the intrinsic motivation that you're looking for or that will be aligned in their sort of innate characteristics and innate interests to the type of department you want to have, right? And there's other things that you can think about, even extrinsic motivation, but that's not financial, right? So things like, what's the culture of your team? How do you give rewards that, you know, might just be a, you know, great job? <laughs> Telling them that they're doing wonderfully, giving them more responsibility, those types of things are often within the scope of control for managers. Yeah. And so, Instead of focusing, you know, on the levers that you don't have access to, it's about thinking about what you can do in your scope of control to either lead change that, you know, you're designing and you think is going to make a big impact for your own team or kind of be that broker between a broader organizational change that's happening and what that means for your own department, right? Because yeah, I think middle yeah. managers actually do have a big impact on how change sort of spreads throughout yeah. an organization. So along those lines, I mean, stepping outside of incentives for a second, I mean, that, yeah. that is that is one of the common, you know, is lack of empowerment, and we've run into that too. Um, yeah. Are there other... Um, are there other strategies, you know, when you don't have sort of that executive air cover, um, other than kind of um, some of the strategies we talked about around alignment of incentives, other, other advice that you would give kind of middle management people who don't necessarily feel like they have that much power to try to um, execute on on something like that, even if it's in the context of their own team. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think there's there's two you know two different scenarios, right? So the one is like if you're a manager of a team and you see the need for a change that is you know local to your team and you want to implement it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and maybe you don't have you don't think you have the resources or you might not have the buy-in or whatever. I think in that case, you have to both, you know, communicate up to your managers or the your manager's managers or whatever about what it is you're trying to do mm -hmm. and, you know, create a sense of urgency in that community with those stakeholders about why you think that change is so important and 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 then work to get that cover and get that support and get those resources that you need in order to make the change successful. Mm -hmm. I think when people often think, when people think about, oh, you need to gain buy-in and communicate a change, they often think about it the other way, like a manager communicating with their team and getting their team to understand the need for change. But it really has to happen both ways, mm -hmm. right? As that middle manager, you have to work up and you have to work down. Yeah. And so not for, you know, not um, forgetting the need to, to do that. The second thing is I think you actually have to be very realistic as a change leader about what 
you can get done. Right? <laughs> yeah. And this is sort of like the sad truth, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, you want to think big, but you also want to be practical. Yeah. And so if you are in a situation where, you know, you don't have the resources, the you don't have the senior leader support and, um, you know, maybe it's a really disruptive time for the organization in general and whatever. Yeah. You know, be realistic about what you can actually achieve within your team. Right. Because if you try to do something really, really big, you know, change is tough. And so if you, you know, potentially if you think too big in certain situations, uh, you may be setting yourself up for failure. Right. Yeah. I think if you're in this sort of other mode of change where it's a bigger organizational change and you're a middle manager and you, you know, you don't feel like you have the resources that you need to make that. Uh, make that change effectively or whatever part of the change you're responsible for. I think there you have a bit of an easier time because theoretically the organization as a whole is trying to change. And so the, you know, hopefully the CEO or the leadership or your managers already recognize that. Mm -hmm. And so then the communication focuses on, you know, I understand this broader change initiative needs to happen. You know, I understand my team's role in that, but in order for us to succeed, we need this kind of support, right? And, and to be very clear about what you need in order to, to ensure that your team can do its part in the broader change effort. Yeah. The, um, you, you mentioned uh, the, the, you know, the kind of that idea of, of um, being realistic about what you can and can't do. And I, I had a mentor back in the day that yeah. said one of the questions that people are always asking is um, under, uh, behind the scenes, like or in their head, they're asking themselves, will this, will this initiative work? Um, and, but then all, cause I don't want to put my political capital on the line yeah. and it's not, but then also is this the person to do it? And do I believe that this person is capable of doing it? Um, yeah. so for folks that maybe want to, it seems like it'd be really valuable career wise to become known as somebody who is really gifted at kind of navigating change and execution and making those sorts of things happen. Are there, are there specific either competencies or skill sets or, um, strategies that you've seen for people that, that kind of want to you know, maybe they're starting with a relatively small kind of circle of influence, but um, through certain strategies or whatever it is, they develop a reputation over time as somebody who can actually make stuff happen and, and earn earn the right to kind of to have more and more responsibility along those lines. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think when it comes down to it, being involved in change and, and leading change is, you know, it, it requires so much in terms of like people skills, yeah. right? Which is, is it's probably easy to say um, and, and perhaps obvious, but it, it really is, you know, because so much of it is being able to map out the power structures and organizations, yeah. to be able to communicate with people so that you're actually hearing what they think. Right. Because it's so easy. You know, you sit down with someone, you're like, oh, how about this change? What do you think? And they say, oh, yeah, sounds great. I'm totally on board. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to their office and they say, you wouldn't believe what this idiot just said. <laughs> right. And so in a way, you have to be able to, you know, you need to be very you know, authentic with yourself because I think people definitely can identify bullshitters out there. Yeah. So you need to sort of be an authentic person, but also be able to connect with people so that you know, people feel comfortable actually talking to you and believing what you're saying and being open with, even if they don't agree with you, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, everything is going to go peachy, but if you as a change leader 
if you don't actually know what people think, yeah. then you're just going to get blindsided over and over and over. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's this ability to connect with people, communicate, you know, be authentic, which is, I mean, it's a bit of a buzzword, but I think you sure. hopefully know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, not necessarily always like not being in a mode where you're always trying to push what you think, but genuinely being open to understanding mm -hmm. what's going on. Right. And I think this is one of the challenges where, you know, with, with I think when organizations take sort of this like cookie cutter approach to change where they see something that's a, you know, quote unquote best practice and they try and implement it and they just like put it in mm -hmm. or try to put it in because they think that's, you know, going to make things better and they don't actually listen to people on their front line or people um, who are doing the work to understand, you know what, this doesn't actually fit because of, you know, a long list of reasons perhaps. Yeah. Right? So you actually have to be able to listen. I had a friend that used to, his advice was to um, decide what the core of the kind of concept is around the initiative. Like what's, what's my non-negotiable? Yeah. Um, and, and ideally not have too many of them be non-negotiable, but, but um, figure out what you are willing to sort of compromise on in advance and then like sort of welcome that kind of feedback and be very flexible on a lot of aspects of it. Because then by doing that, these people now get to put their stamp on it and now it's their idea too. And now yeah. they're going to kind of be your advocate, which was really interesting to me because a lot of people kind of, they, they emerge with an idea of kind of fully baked and then any, any feedback that's critical or any modifications that people want to make, they kind of are offended by. Um, exactly. And then they're in sort of an yeah. adversarial relationships all the time, you know? Yeah. And in those types of situations, right, it's like, it's, you know, if you get that pushback and you frame it as, you know, it's so easy to brush it aside being like, oh, that's a resistor. That person's just resistant to change. Mm -hmm. Like that's not that you're actually getting valuable information from them. Right. They're telling you, right. you know, very few people are just naturally resistant to everything. Yeah. Right. So there is something something going on there about, you know, for that person, when they think about this change in interaction with their work, there's something there that is, you know, not jiving, right? And so you need to be able to dig in and really understand. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you talk about where you need to be, you know, that you have a few non-negotiables and then be flexible, I think that's critical because you can't come in with a solution. You have to understand the problem that they're facing in a really deep way. And maybe you have a couple of ideas of ways to approach that problem, but you know, part of that needs to be created with the people who are actually doing the work. Yeah, got it. You mentioned, um, you know, one of the things that you said, said kind of at the outset is that, they, that folks underestimate how long this stuff chain, uh, takes. Mm -hmm. how, how do you, is there anything that you've seen that people have done to kind of keep the momentum going? Because I could see it, you know, uh, just through, uh, I can see excitement waning when you get into the details and people are starting to run into resistance or whatever it is. And I would imagine that a lot of people kind of, um, a lot of failure happens just because they, they underestimate the level of effort that it's going to take to kind of stick with it. How, how, how do people either individually kind of keep that, that um, sort of enthusiasm and the momentum going or, you know, you mentioned the kind of the importance of communication, like are there communication strategies to kind of keep um, the enthusiasm level high and the level of kind of um, team support high and morale and all that kind of stuff? Have you seen anything that's effective there? Yeah, so I think one of one of the things is that you need to, um, 
you know, celebrate wins, mm-hmm. right? So hopefully if you're doing a big change initiative you have, and you have metrics in place, which I mentioned earlier, yeah. that you start to actually see, you know, tangible, meaningful improvements in some sort of metric that you're, you know, trying to move in six months, a year, 18 months, something like that, so that you can point to that and say, you know, all this hard work is paying off. We're making, we're making moves uh, and, you know, we're, we're getting better. And again, the timeline will depend on the scope of the change you're trying to make, but really broadcasting those wins is critical, right? Because that can be a way that you can sort of keep people's attention on what you're doing, as well as give them some sense that what you're doing is actually working. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't want to do it too much, more trade-offs, you don't want to do it too much (laughs) because it can create a sense of complacency, right? If people think that, oh, great, we did it, everything's better. So you want to couple this idea of celebrating wins with continued focus. Perhaps it's you know resetting targets mm-hmm. to to go even farther than where you've already gotten, or broadening the scope of change um, to really like keep that pressure on, right? So you're not sort of lifting your foot off the gas. So yeah. you're basically saying, hey. We've had some great wins. This is clearly working. Great work, everybody. Now we need to really think big about this and roll it out to all the other geographies or try it out in all our different product groups or, you know, have even more cross-selling than we had before or something like that, right? So it's a combination of celebration and and sort of pushing the targets um, even further. Got it. Um, along kind of similar, I guess this isn't exactly the same thing, but you also had mentioned kind of... Um, mistaking a uh, like a single and not recognizing the difference between kind of a like a, a single sort of change initiative versus kind of baking it more into kind of your DNA um, yes. any strategies that you've seen there in terms of like because it seems like it's two different activities like one is like the micro there's a specific thing I'm trying to get done here and then the other one is almost like um, mindset right um, are there are there things that you've seen to kind of make it much more a, a part of a part of the organization's kind of long-term culture versus just having a single kind of successful initiative? Yeah, I mean, I think I see the sort of the change being embedded in the fabric of the organization as kind of like the end point of the change process, right? So even if it's like we have a new way of, you know, managing our purchase orders and it seems very narrow, Right. It's like this one particular process that only, you know, a few people deal with, you know, and you're making a change to that very narrow thing. The idea is like over time, you know, you you redesign the process, you get everybody on board, you communicate it, you start doing it. After a while, you find that it's working, you celebrate that win, you know, maybe there's more change that still needs to happen. But then ultimately, as the months tick by, if you actually keep your eye on that and you make sure that people aren't reverting back to the old way of working, well, then at some point, it does become embedded in the fabric of the organization, right? And then you do have you know, a new way of working. So somebody new, you know, gets hired into purchasing and they're learning the new way of doing it. And they're learning the new way of doing it, not because, you know, the existing purchasing is saying, oh man, we have to do this like crappy new process, but because that's the way they do it, right? And I think that's when you start to see um, this sort of like institutionalized change at the end of the process. 
Got you know, it. bigger changes like, oh, we want a more, you know, innovative culture or something like that. When you've got a change like that, that type of thing, it's a little bit more nebulous. So I would encourage people to define what that means to them and think about different ways that they could measure or think about innovation. And then those types of changes where you're talking about, you know, broad organizational cultures can sometimes take many, many years to actually, you know, get get institutionalized in that in that organization. Got it. Okay. Um, one of the thing one of the things that we run into a lot, or, or not not run into a lot, but um, there's a very common um, sort of philosophical framework that folks use, and it's you know there's folks like Doblin and other folks that have kind of come up with various versions of this, but the gist is basically like distinguishing between incremental and disruptive types of innovation. Mm -hmm. And and one of the kind of main ideas is that um, there are many many differences with those in terms of the procedures you use and the some of the competencies that you might have on the team, and again, you know, incentives and how you align those and all that sort of stuff. Um, from what you've seen, how, how do you feel like the, the, the change, how, uh, folks should approach change when they're tackling these kind of smaller little you know, um, point-based solutions or more incremental types of improvements versus things that are going to kind of fundamentally reimagine the way that the organization operates? Are there any discrepancies that you would see there in terms of how you would approach it? Um, yeah, I mean, they're so different, right? Um, and, you know, I think when you're dealing with sort of smaller incremental changes, those tend to be in, you know, a small number of units or subunits in the organization. And so really the people that you, you know, you of course you want the top executives of the organization um, or the division or whatever to be very much engaged. But really, you need the expertise of the people that are in that unit that's changing, right? Yeah. And you need maybe it's more technical knowledge as well as you know the the people who can lead the change process in general, right? Yeah. Um, but it pr places less stress on the organization. Maybe can be done more quickly, um, and so it's a little bit of a simpler process when you're thinking about incremental change. Um, when you're thinking about radical change or disruptive change, there the scope just generally is much larger, right? Like you're changing the way, you know, your business goes to market or you're changing the way that, um, you know, you innovate or something like that. Yeah. So that often, you know, almost by definition, touches on many different areas of the organization. Yeah. And so it puts a lot more stress. You need more resources, you need more people that can lead change across you know multiple areas of the organization and that's when you really really need the CEOs and the rest of the people in the C-suite to be actively engaged in the project right yeah um, because you know so much is changing yeah. and also you know especially for organizations that have been successful in the past you know you end up getting these you know lots of people within the organization you know they have models in their mind about, you know, how you successfully operate in this line of work. And so when you are implementing a big, you know, transformational disruptive change, it can be really hard for those people to shake those existing models loose. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, hopefully you can keep a lot of your workforce and um, they can be effective in whatever new regime you're putting in place. But 
in some instances, that also that type of change needs to come with some sort of turnover where you're bringing in people who are aligned with that, who are more naturally aligned with that new way of, of working. Yeah, that brings up a good point. I mean, I think a lot of times folks, um, the, 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 the bias is maybe to, to try to bring in folks from the outside because uh, they've done it maybe in the past and then they hope yeah. they can kind of do it inside of their organization. And it sounds like it sounds like there's certain circumstances where that would be you know, effective and maybe sometimes where it's not. But if you're one of those people who is being brought in, I guess yeah. maybe from both sides, like from the, from the company's side, how do you set those people up to maximize their likelihood of success? And then maybe um, from the side of the person kind of coming in, what should they be thinking about to avoid, you know, kind of being the, the, the new, the organ donor that gets rejected or whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, yes. Um, so from the, you know, if you're the person coming in, you know, likely you're coming in because you've demonstrated some success at doing this in the past, right? So, you know, you've led a similar change transformation at a different organization. And so you've got those credentials and you're coming in to basically do the same thing in, in a new organization. And so I think that there's a bunch of stuff that you can do to help ease your landing in that type of, of situation. Yeah. The first is to recognize, and this seems simple, but I think is where a lot of people fall down, that the new organization is not the old organization, right? And so you may have done this successfully in the past, but that it doesn't necessarily mean that your solution or your approach are going to work the way that you think they should in the new organization, yeah. right? You basically don't know the culture, you don't know the people, you don't know the history, you know, you can do all the homework you want and still really not truly understand that new organization that you're going into. Yeah. And I think in that way, feeling like you walk in, that you've got the answer, that you're just gonna put it in place, that you're gonna implement it, is a big issue yeah. uh, in, in many instances, right? Yeah. And I think some people feel like, oh, well, I'm hired because I've done this, so they want me to have the answer, and so I need to go in and I need to demonstrate that I know what I'm talking about, right? Like, that's a very natural feeling, but it can get you into trouble because you, you may have the background, but you don't know the organization yet. And so I think it's about, again, negotiating when you're going in to give yourself the time that you need to learn about the organization before you go and try and change it. Mm -hmm. um, I think from the organization's perspective, I mean, the flip side of that is, you know, you also need to recognize that just because the person has done it before doesn't mean it's easily going to happen in your company, right? The context is different. The companies are different. The challenges are different. Maybe even the industries are different. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can use the experience, but you actually need to, to treat that change as if it's starting from zero. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I think that's an issue that that organizations often have when they're looking at either, you know, rolling out a change that they've done in one division to other divisions or, you know, having high expectations of a new leader that's coming in is they don't realize that for those people who are experiencing the change for the people in the organization, it is a brand new change. And so yeah. you can't short circuit some of that important you know, that first stuff of urgency and buy-in and communication just because, you know, you think it should go faster. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess I know the answer to this based on <laughs> based on the last 45 minutes, but um, uh, if some, you know, if someone were to ask you to kind of boil it, boil down your, your you know, all of the various kind of levers um, into sort of a, um, you know, a playbook or, or sort of unified theory, I'm guessing the answer to this is that there isn't one, but yeah, it, 
It, uh, exactly, Sean. Okay. Yes. All right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so I, where I, would you suggest someone starts then? Like, if someone were to like, like, is there is there a is there a is there a way for someone that wants to do this and is like, I I want to be the person that can kind of help my organization. Kind of, is there a first step? So I think, I mean, it's funny, as you say there, if you, as you say, there's, you know, no unified approach. I think, you know, my, my thinking on this is that my unified approach would be to understand the trade-offs you're making at every step of the process. Okay. Right. Because, because, you know, simply because there is no right answer and it's also context dependent, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of, you know, this incentive structure might work perfectly in that organization and terribly in this one. That structure is going to be perfect there, terrible in here. This sequencing of change is going to be perfect in firm A and absolutely awful in firm B. And so in every one of those decisions, you are you are making trade-offs. And so, you know, you, you have to be, obviously, as a change leader, you have to be smart on what, you know, what all the you know, group change gurus say, yeah. but that ultimately it's up to you to take all that knowledge and distill it into whatever context, whatever problem you're facing, right? Yeah. And so my advice is, you know, for people who are interested in leading change or, you know, in the middle of leading change or participating in change, you know, go out there and read. There are a lot of books that, you know, about change, about change in organization. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, I don't think anyone is exactly right. Right. So I get my students to read a lot of like John Cotter and his, you know, eight step model to change or Galbraith's star alignment model. Those are the two frameworks that I talk a lot about in my class. But there are a lot of other frameworks and they all have something slightly different to say. Right. So instead of just taking one model and applying it in this very, you know, cookie cutter way, read broadly and, and actually push yourself to think, okay, well, why does, you know, this model talk about it this way, but this other model talks about it that way. And then think of, think about it, push yourself to think about it and figure out what are those different levers you have? How would you apply them? Which trade-offs make sense in your context and which ones don't, right? And then you can't get away from the hard work of actually tri- like translating these models into your particular context. Yeah, yeah. Are those kinds of frameworks, are those helpful to like educate, are those useful tools to educate the team? Um, like to, to anchor people's thinking or, or is it, um, is it just something that you kind of keep in the back of your mind? Like, have you found, have you found leveraging of existing frameworks and things like that to be a useful aid? in this? Yeah, I think so. I, I actually do think they are, um, because, you know, in some sense it's about giving some credibility to the process that people are going through. Yeah. Right. So like, I don't believe you, but I believe this professor or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Right. And so you can say, you know, these are the things that are, you know, important, or even if it's just like, okay, well, we're thinking about, you know, redesigning the organization structure here are, you know, I go to my like org design book and pull out the different dimensions of, of structure and what to think about. And like, you can use that as material to, you know, help shape your thinking, your interaction with your own team if you're leading change, but also uh, the people in the organization that you're trying to engage with. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, that's all I got. Uh, this, was, this was really great. Um, for, for maybe for folks that want to learn more about your work or, or um, find out more about you, how, how, where, where should I point people to? 
You can point people to um, the Kellogg website for the okay. Management and Organizations Department. I've got a profile there which has my contact info and um, you know what I like to think about. So yeah, it's been fun, fun for me too. No, this is great. Thanks so much. My guest today was Jillian Chown. For more ideas on how to drive change in your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, would love a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you use. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.